Hey there, this is Brian with Mid-City Vineyard Church. Mid-City Vineyard is located in the heart of New Orleans, Louisiana. We worship on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. And you uh, can find out a little bit more about us on Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard Church, Instagram, at Mid-City Vineyard, and online, midcityvineyard.org. For the last number of weeks, we have been in a series entitled, I've Always Wondered, and these are questions that... Uh, people in our church have about the faith, the Christian faith particularly. And so this week, the question that we tackled was, what does the Bible really say about same-sex relationships? And I just want to tell you in this intro here that uh, there is so much debate and going back and forth in the church today. Uh, there are folks that live and uh, land on both sides of this particular conversation. And so in this particular teaching, it is longer than most of our teachings because I really wanted to lay out for you the difference, uh, the two different streams, primarily the traditional stream and then also the revisionist stream and allow you to think through, uh, look up some of those scriptures if you'd like, process those things and really find uh, your way to what you sense God leading you towards. I will tell you that at the end of this particular teaching, I let people know where I have personally landed and where Mid-City Vineyard Church has landed and is headed. And so I invite you to really engage this conversation and uh, allow it to shape and form you in different ways. So we're going to head on over to the conversation. Much peace to you. I've decided that we're calling this, this is more like I've always wondered, here are my questions about the faith, and I'm not giving you answers. I'm giving you responses, because in a lot of cases here, I don't think that, I, I don't think that anyone can really say definitively, here's the answer. This is what you should believe. I, I don't feel confident enough like that, and honestly, I've come to a place where I don't really trust people who feel that confident in their own uh, selves and education and thoughts uh, to, to go that route. I mean, when we're talking about things of spirituality and faith, there's so much that goes into your own personal experience. There's so much that goes on to, to your own past and how things have been fleshed out and worked out. And so today's response uh, to the question, the question is this, and this one was asked more than once, but uh, here's, here's how they phrased it. Homosexuality is one of the most divisive issues in the church today. So could you help explain what is said in the Bible about this particular topic? It seems to me, the person writing, that most people use the Bible and interpret it to benefit their own beliefs. I thought, wow, this is, this is deep and solid and good, and I think that's the case across the board. A lot of times, people kind of, there are different ways of interpreting the scripture, and depending on your slant, you will probably interpret it certain ways on certain things and certain ways on other things, and I don't know. I don't know. We got to we just have to try to keep working that out. And that's why we started with week 1. How do you even read the scripture? Uh, because how one reads the scripture is is really important uh, to answering or to responding to some of these questions. So we're going to tackle this today because I agree that in the church in the Christian church today this is a really hot topic. And if you can't talk about this stuff in the faith community, I I don't know. That's a sad state uh, for the faith community to be in if we can't talk about these things. Today, the way I'm going to line it out is I'm going to give you two responses, and then you 
can wrestle yourself with where you think uh, the Spirit is leading you to land. And I'll tell you even where I land, because I think that's fair for us as a church that you would know um, where, where, where we land. So I'm going to pray for us, because it is, uh, Lord, we thank you for your presence that is with us. And Lord, today as we're looking into the scriptures, as we are uh, dialoguing and, and conversing about the things that we think and the things that we see and the things that we experience, uh, my prayer is that you would open our hearts and minds and thoughts to what you're saying to us. And uh, Lord, let the, let the stuff that really resonates, let it land in our hearts. And for the stuff that uh, just kind of misses the mark, let it, let it bounce off. But Lord, the stuff that challenges us, maybe in ways that we haven't thought before, if it's a challenge that comes directly from you, then Lord, let it, let it stick so that we can, we can wrestle with it. Because everything that we do, we want to just keep moving in direction with you as you continue to grow us in the ways of love and mercy, grace, and beauty. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Amen. So I think any time we're going to talk about anything that has to do with sex, we have to start with just sexuality in general. And in 2019, we live in a society that easily uses and abuses sex all the way around. Uh, in any way, shape, or form. The funny thing about it is, or the sad thing, it's not really funny, is that it's nothing new for sex to be used and to be abused. It's been this way for generation after generation after generation for centuries, literally for thousands and thousands of years. And I would suggest that the reason for this is because at the core of our being, human beings are sexual beings. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's how we have been created, and there's this incredibly deep connection between our sexuality, our soul, our spirit, and the divine, and how we're connected to God. And I think this is why, if you were to read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, you will see that human sexuality is, there are things expressed about sexuality over and over and over again. So there are grave warnings throughout the scriptures about sexual promiscuity. There are grave warnings throughout the scripture about loveless sex, careless sex, illicit sexual practices. It's, it's, it's Old Testament and it's New Testament. And I believe that the reason for that is because there is this deep-seated connection between a human being's sexuality and their ultimate connection to themselves, to other people, to creation, and to God. Because... Sexuality, human sexuality, is not just about having sex. Now, having sex is part of human sexuality, but it's not, it's not just about that. Because our sexuality is, I believe, scientifically, psychologically, mentally, it's about our need. We all have this intrinsic need to be connected. We have this desire, this want to be connected. We want to be connected with the world around us. We want to be connected with other people. We want to be connected with ourselves. We want to be connected to the divine. And so if we go back and we look at the, the creation narrative in Christian scripture, it's about God creating, God creating human beings. The human beings uh, are, are con completely connected to the earth. They're completely connected to themselves, to one another, to the divine. There's no distortion. There's no shame. There's no disconnect. That's how the story begins. And then the story goes sideways. And we talk, we've talked about this a number of times. The story goes sideways. It goes south. 
and the, the human beings choose another way. And when they choose another way, there is a disconnect. They become disconnected from themselves. Shame enters the picture. They become disconnected from the creation. They become disconnected from one another. They become disconnected from God. And so we're severed, we're cut off in a thousand different ways. It's interesting, scholars, some scholars believe that the word sex actually comes from the Latin word, or it's part of the Latin word, uh, and I think the way you say this Latin word is secare, S-E-C-A-R-E, which means to sever or to amputate or to disconnect from the whole. And so oftentimes sexuality could be viewed as it's our awareness of just how disconnected we are and how we strive to be reconnected, which is wise. If you, you might have had this experience before. Have you ever had the experience where you were at a, a concert? Uh, and, and for that moment in time, everyone together has their, has their, they're singing their hearts out on this particular song, and there is this general sense that there is something greater at work than what you can wrap your, your mind and your heart and your head around. And you feel intimately connected to the person to your right and to the person to your left. There's thousands of people in the stadium, and there, there's this out-of-body kind of experience where there is just this beautiful, amazing connection. If you've ever experienced that, it is in many ways, it's this, it's without having sex, it's a very spiritual, soulful, sexual, mental, psychological, there's this thing that is happening in the, in the presence of others. There is this deep connection that you're experiencing. This, this happens in other ways, too. I mean, in, in, in that's a good way, but it happens in tragic ways. You know, you think of things like uh, when you go to a, a, um, a memorial service for after, after a shooting or after 9-11. You might remember, you know, at 9-11, people didn't know what to do, and, and people flocked to community events where they could feel connected to someone else something bigger than ourselves it's a, it's amazing so there's a there's it's we are all these we're these integrated beings mentally psychologically soulfully spiritually sexually and this is why you can meet some people who practice celibacy abstaining completely from uh, sexual experiences and yet these are some of the most connected people in the world connected to themselves grounded in reality connected to the divine connected to others I, you, you've, you've, you've probably met some of these people. I mean, I know people who have devoted themselves to celibate lifestyles. And it just, for some people, it's like, a, they would say it's a, it's a calling. For other people, maybe they, they realize at a certain point that, that marriage uh, and connection with another person didn't seem, it wasn't jiving, and so they just chose it. But, but they are connected. They, they find unity and they find fulfillment in their relationships with other people. And that's why you can also find people who have sex with anyone at any time all over the place, and they are some of the most disconnected people you'll ever encounter or experience. I, they, they're looking for love, and they're looking for connection and all these sexual experiences, and they're completely disconnected from themselves. They're fragmented oftentimes. That's why you can have these different experiences, though, is because sexuality is more than sex. Now, here are a couple of important points for us as, if, as we're going to look at um, the, the understanding of homosexuality in today's context. First off, we need to remember a couple of things. Uh, remember, number one, that we are sexual beings. Number two, when we look into the scripture, please remember that the scriptures, the, the, the ancient Hebrew and Jewish 
um, and Christian scriptures were written between the years 1400 BC and 160 CE, the common era. So they span over this time frame, a particular moment in history. The scriptures were written in a male dominated patriarchal society. That is of the utmost importance to remember because some of the things I'm gonna say, you might say, that is incredibly sexist. It's not me, it's the scripture. <laughs> okay, it's like really, um, you, we have to remember that it is a patriarchal society. Women, during the time that the scriptures were written, were considered lesser beings. I'm not saying that. I do not believe that women are lesser beings in any way, shape, or form. What must be understood is that all of the authors lived in a society and actually had a paradigm in which women are weaker, women are lesser, women are passive, and they are expected to remain that way. Okay, that's the society in which the scriptures were written. Now, when it comes to homosexuality and, and, and why this is so combated in the church, and it is these days, I want to tell you also up front, I didn't bring the stack, but there on my desk right now, there's a stack of books this tall of the books that I've been studying and reading over the last 10 years or so on homosexuality, the Christian tradition, faith, and in my stack of books that is this big, there are scholars who say homosexuality is absolutely wrong in, in, in Christian tradition. And there are other scholars who say homosexuality is absolutely okay in Christian tradition. There are people with PhDs and master's degrees and biblical studies and scholars who say absolutely not, and others with PhDs and masters and scholars that say absolutely. So there is no common thread on this thing. There just, there just is not. There are two views that we're going to look at today. The first one is what is known as the traditional view. Here's the traditional view in a nutshell. One man, one woman, married for life. Covenantal, committed, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. And then those folks in the traditional view would say, for anyone who has same-sex orientation, the people who are straight with heterosexual orientation would say, for anyone who has same-sex orientation, that person should choose a lifetime of celibacy if they want to be a Christian. The revisionist view, in a nutshell, is on the other side, which would suggest that it is one man, one woman married for life, or one man, one man married for life, or one woman, one woman married for life. The idea in the, uh, in the revisionist view is that covenantal, monogamous, same-sex relationships should be permissible and considered okay for those who are gay and lesbian. Okay, so that would be the revisionist view. There are a couple of key things that we're going to look at for each of these, though. Because, though, there are a couple of key things that we're going to look at in each of these. That's okay. There are many who hear, and let me just, there, there are terms that the church often uses. A church could be, and you, you need to kind of know some of this as we move forward, but a church could be not welcoming and not affirming, which means that that particular church or denomination or congregation might say that if you are gay or lesbian, you are not welcome here, and we don't affirm your sexuality. There's another group that would say welcoming but not affirming. 
And they would say, you're welcome here, but we do not affirm as Christians your sexuality. So we don't affirm that practice. So you cannot be married. You cannot teach. You cannot lead. You not, cannot do those kinds of things. And then the third group would be welcoming and affirming. You're welcome here, and we affirm your sexuality. We affirm who you are in, in that gay or lesbian relationship. The reason this gets weird, though, is because a lot of people say, oh, you're just, you just let anything go. Our key here would be, no, the, the movement is still towards, in the Christian tradition, monogamous, covenantal, committed relationship, whether it's in a, uh, between the sexes or same sex. So that's how the, the revisionist view would be. Okay, So it's not just the revisionists don't say, oh, all sexuality, just anything goes. I mean, you already heard what I said from the very beginning. You see people who have sex all the time with all kinds of people doing all kinds of things, and they're broken and, and hurting and fragmented. And we're trying as followers of Christ to find wholeness and peace and goodness and mercy. So those are the two views, traditional and revisionist. So here, here we go. We're going to look at the, these two uh, side by side. First off, Please understand there are 1,189 chapters in the Christian scriptures. And of those 1,189 scriptures, there are, are chapters, there are 11 chapters, give or take, that mention homosexuality. And those are the 11 chapters that we have to go on out of uh, over 1,100 chapters. And those chapters are this. You don't have to write these down. I just want you to know there, here's the formula. You take Genesis 1 and 2 for the traditionalist view. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 plus Genesis chapter 19 plus Leviticus chapter 18 plus Judges chapter 19. I'm going to tell you what's in all these. Plus Matthew chapter 19 plus Romans chapter 1 plus 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And that equals, once you read them all, it equals, equals a clear ban on homosexual relationships and practices. What do these passages say? This is the traditional view. Genesis 1 and 2. These are the creation accounts. These are, these are kind of big accounts uh, when it comes to this particular side of the argument. In the creation accounts, in Genesis chapter 1, what we see is God creates humanity. And the argument here is God creates humanity, male and female, and commands male and female to be joined together, to be fruitful, to multiply. In Genesis chapter 2, Man, it's a different creation account because these are these two Genesis one and Genesis two were written five hundred years apart. Okay, so you have one creation account in Genesis one, God creates man and woman, and then in Genesis two you have a completely different creation account where it says that God created a man, and then he needed a, a man was lonely and God wanted to give man a helper, so God made all the animals, and he was like, well, none of these work, and so he was like, well, let's make a woman. That's what he did. See, so you've got two very different creation accounts going on here but the idea is that man was lonely and man did god didn't want man to be lonely so he makes a woman you can already see the 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 vein that the scriptures were written in because man's lonely and he needs a, a, a help me but that's what she was expected to be okay genesis chapter 19 and judges chapter 19 two huge uh passages when it comes to thoughts on homosexuality Genesis chapter 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Are you familiar with those stories, Sodom and Gomorrah? So you've got these two towns, and there's a lot of evil going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is like, you know what, I'm going to destroy these two towns. And, and so he sends some angels into Sodom, these two 
guys, and he sends these angels into Sodom. He says, hey, go knock on the door, stay at this house, uh, and let them know. He sends them to Lot's house. Lot is a righteous person. He's the only righteous person in all of Sodom. He says, go over to Sodom, stay with Lot, and then tell Lot and his family to leave because I'm going to destroy the town. Well, when uh, these angels go, these men angels go to stay at Lot's house, it says that the men of the town were like, oh, there's two visitors in town. Let's go over to Lot's house and let's knock on the door and let's, let's uh, ask for the visitors to come out so that we can have sex with them and rape them. And so the men of the town go to, go to Sodom and, and, or go to Lot's door and they knock on the door and they're like, send the men out. We want to uh, rape them and we want to have sex with them. And Lot's like, no, this is, no, like that, we're not doing that. And so Lot says, listen, I've got my daughter. She's a virgin. I'll send her out to you and you can do whatever you want with her. Okay, now you kind of see where this whole, and they're like, no, we don't want your virgin daughter. We want the men so that we can have sex with them. They eventually all flee. You know the rest of the story. Sodom and Gomorrah are both destroyed. So much so that it comes around 11th century, the word sodomy is birthed out of what happened in Sodom. So that so it became Sodom and Gomorrah became equivalent with uh, males having sex with males. Now, in Judges 19, we have another very similar story. We have uh, this, this thing where there's some people that come to stay at the home of a man in Gabeah. There, there's some other men. They come to the town, and the men of the square come to that house. And they're like, hey, you have male visitors. We want to rape them. We want to have sex with them. We want to do all these things. And the host says, listen, I have a virgin daughter. And the dude that's staying with me brought his concubine with him. You guys can have the concubine and the daughter, virgin daughter, and you guys can do whatever you want with them. Just leave my male guest alone. No, no, we don't want that. Well, eventually they send the concubine out. The concubine being his, his female servant who he has sex with. His plus one. <laughs> That's his plus one. <laughs> Dang it, I wish I'd have had that. Like, so check this out. They send, they send his plus one out there, and she is raped and beaten all night, gang raped by the men of the town, so much so that they kill her. Like she dies from her injuries. They kill this woman. So we, we see there, and, and we... we we see the homosexual tendencies, and that's where the, the idea of abomination comes in, but that's not even what happened. These, these were, well, this is the traditionalist view. Leviticus chapter 18, there are a couple of passages. Um, the first one says that no one at any time should ever get tattoos. And then right after that, there's the one that says, and it commands, and Leviticus 18.22 commands that a man should not lie with a man as a man lies with a woman. And then in Leviticus 20, verse 13, prescribes the death penalty, the death penalty for this offense while using the word tova, the Hebrew word tova, which is translated an abomination. It is an abomination for a man to lie with a man, and if a man should do so, he should be stoned to death. This is the traditionalist view. Matthew chapter 19. There's a question about um, marriage, and divorce, which the Bible also has a good deal to say about. 
And Jesus is responding to the questions of morality of men divorcing their wives. And when Jesus responds to the question, he appeals to the Genesis 1 and 2 story about the creation narrative in which there are strict limits on initiating divorce. But he talks about what when a man has been joined to a woman, no one should take that apart. And so Jesus kind of seems to reference back to the creation account. Romans chapter 1. Hang with me. We're just, I think it's important for us to go through these so that we understand what we're dealing with. Romans chapter 1 is one of the trickiest passages in the scripture because this is the one where Paul says that the people were handed over to the sins of their flesh where men exchanged natural relations for, uh, with women for relations with men and where women exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations where they in, engaged in lesbian um, uh, encounters. Now, the idea here is that Paul is probably making an argument as to why everyone, because this, that's the passage that people use for the homosexuality, but the, the Romans 1 is a very long chapter, and he's talking about all kinds of things that get people into trouble. And so he's offering salvation or an understanding of why everyone needs Christ to find wholeness and to find peace and to find grace and to find mercy. Maybe Paul is trying to illustrate uh, the idolatry of sinfulness among the Gentiles, because remember, he's writing to a Gentile, a non-Jewish group of people here. And that's where he makes the, the um, distinctions about same or natural for unnatural. And so this is a big passage also for ruling out any type of homosexual engagement. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and uh, 1 Timothy 1.10 are both vice lists. So you might have read through the scriptures before and found these vice lists where Paul says things like, and the drunkard and the gossiper. We never concentrate on gossipers, by the way. But he says the drunkard and the gossiper and the liar and the slanderer and the homosexual and the this and the that. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are vice lists. These are things that aren't good for you. In these particular lists, there are two words that Paul uses. One is uh, the Greek word malakoi, and the other one is, uh, harder to say, arsen, ar, arsenokoitai. That's how you, arsenokoitai. And these have been translated various ways, but primarily they are used to translate the words homosexual or sodomite. Greek words translated homosexual or sodomite. And then any time... Sexual immorality is described in the Bible. The word porneia, which is where we get our word pornography, is used. Porneia is the all-encompassing anything that has to do with sexual immorality. Okay, so it's sexual promiscuity. It's sex outside of marriage. It is uh, sex. It's illicit sex. It's, it's multiple sexual partners. It's, it's pornography. It's all these kinds of things where he's like, look, sexual immorality, the thing that continues to drive you towards further disconnect as opposed to deeper connection. Those things are things that God would say, hey, come back over here and let's find deeper connection. Let's find a better sexual ethic, so to speak. Okay. The real argument, and this, the traditionalists would use all of these passages to say it is clear from the scripture, it says it right here, that homosexual practice and engagement is wrong. And that's how the traditionalists will interpret it. The real argument here for revisionists is, well, 
what are the words, what are the ideas behind some of these sayings? The, uh, the traditionalists would take it all at face value. Now, I don't know, you know, I know most of us in the room, but I don't know how all of us were raised. So I would venture to say that many, if you found yourself at a church like this, uh, many were raised in more of an evangelical type of setting, which would have lent itself towards this type of traditional view, just an open, flat reading of the scriptures. And so you have probably been taught that way. Others of you uh, might have been taught differently. I, so I don't know. I, everybody's going to come at this from different angles. What I'm saying is I'm going to give you that view, which is an open, flat reading, and then I'm going to give you the other view, and then you need to wrestle. That's, that's, that's your job. That's my job. The revisionist would take all of these same passages and say, I think there is a different way of reading the scriptures. I think there is a different way of interpreting the scriptures here. And so I want to go back through most of these. I want to go back through most of these passages, and I want to help you see the revisionist, uh, what a revisionist might say. So when it comes to sentence structures, words, Greek words, interpretation, all these things, in Genesis chapter 19, many have actually interpreted the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah on the traditionalist side due to the homosexual practices. Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because the men of the town only wanted to have sex with men in the town, and it was distorted, it was wrong, and so God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. However... When Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned throughout the scriptures from that point on, it's very interesting that homosexuality is often not mentioned as one of their main sins. The names of the towns have become bywords of homosexual practice. Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, I mean, we, we, we talk about that. But when the practices of those cities were mentioned in the future, in the book of Isaiah, they mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. But when Isaiah talks about Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, he credits it, credits it to the abuse of public justice. In Jeremiah, when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, he talks about the adultery that was taking place, the lying that was taking place, the unwillingness to repent taking place. He talks about all of these kinds of things. In Ezekiel chapter 16, he talks about the pride. He talks about the excess of food. He talks about the lack of care for the poor. These are all big deals as to why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, according to all these other authors. They don't mention the homosexual practices, but we traditionally have credited it to just the homosexual practices. And here's what happens. Many scholars believe Sodom and Gomorrah, and I think this is incredibly fascinating, Many scholars believe that Sodom and Gomorrah at that time had sunk to such a low state that they actually referred to Sodom and Gomorrah as kind of like this uh, depraved battlefield scenario or depraved prison experience. The men of Sodom wanted to participate in things like gang rape. That's what happened with those men. The men of Sodom desired to dominate and show their dominance and they desire to humiliate and to harm the visitors of that town in that particular story, treating them like defenseless women. This was the whole thing in a, in, a, in a revisionist view. In a sexist social system, the most outrageous thing that a man could do would be to treat another man like a woman. 
to treat another man like a woman because what he is able to do in that situation, in that culture, is to exert his power, to be power over another man. The men who were raping the men were not on the receiving end of the rape. You see, so they are exerting their power. They are exerting what they would consider their manhood and all these things. And this is what the revisionists would say. This was where the issue was. It was a power over play. In Leviticus, these, these, um, these passages are rarely used anymore. Nobody ever goes to Leviticus anymore. Uh, you know, um, because they, they don't know what to do with that. Well, yeah. But what happens in Leviticus when they say you should even kill someone, you should kill a man, stone him for doing this, it's because uh, the ultimate, what, what revisionists would say is the ultimate thing that's going on here is you are subjecting another man to your wills and ways. That would be the ultimate sin here. In 1 Corinthians, when we talk about sexual immorality, there are a couple ways that people interpret this word malachor. So different translations translate the Bible differently. I don't know if you've realized this, but the King James uses one word, and the NIV uses another word, and the NAS uses another word, and the Message Bible uses a different word, and the New American uh, Living Translation uses another word. Why? Because everybody's trying to do their best to figure out what the original language and the original author meant. The word malakoi, primarily, when Paul talks about it, it's, it's recorded as homosexual in lots of translations, but the word, the Greek word malakoi, is often translated weakling, effeminate, debaucherers, licentious, or male prostitutes. All of these words could work for malakoi. The word arsenikoitai, would, could over the centuries, has been uh, translated uh, <laughs> buggerers. I guess, I don't know what translation called them, buggers. Those buggers. Um, sodomites, homosexuals, perverts, perverted homosexuals. Uh, it, it's like it, no one can really figure, and, and that word, arsenikoitai, is only used twice in the New Testament. They say that Paul actually put two words together to make up a new word, which I do that all the time. So I can really appreciate that. That's kind of like my thing, you know, but... The problem is no one really knows, really knows how to translate these words. And if I could say one thing about Paul, and this is this has driven me in so many ways, there was something very popular during Paul's time. Scholars are really confused today, really confused on if Paul even had an understanding of homosexual relationships. Scholars are very conflicted on if the actual homosexual relationships were a thing at that time that people would have known about. You know, I mean, I think it had been a, a thing for forever and a day, but it's always been held in the closet. And so I don't know what Paul would have known. What Paul would have known in his day and time, he would have known, very importantly, he would have known that males understand sex as something to show who they are to dominate others. Another thing that was very popular at that day in the Greco-Roman world was something called pederasty. Pederasty was men having sex with boys. It was men having sex with boys, as, and the boys were the passive partner where the man, it was like his boy slave. 
That, and that was something that all scholars agreed that Paul was absolutely 100% speaking out against because it was a power over play. Having sex with male servants, all of these. Again, every, all scholars agree that Paul was absolutely speaking out against anything that caused a man to exercise power over another. And in this situation, whether it was through male prostitution, pederasty, uh, male slaves, servants, any of those things. And so many scholars on the revisionist view would say that the homosexual patterns and behaviors that Paul was talking about and that he was coming out against were these patterns because this is what he would have been most, this is how he most would have understood homosexuality in his time and his culture or the homosexual practices. And then the final four passages that would be used and maybe the most would be the understanding that human sexuality was created in the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative as male and female, therefore declaring that homosexual relations would be contrary to God's fixed or original plan. This might be the most often used argument on the traditionalist view. The revisionist would say that in Genesis 11, uh, chapters 1 through 11, that most all scholars believe that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is a culmination of other creation narratives and stories that was taken by the Hebrews, the stories they add, they took elements from other creation narratives. We've talked about this, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. They've taken elements from those stories. They've added new elements. They've given us a picture of what human uh, creation looks like, human origins, the, the creation in general, what marriage and family life and sources of human evil and suffering and the birth of culture, all these things. We, they try to pull it all together in Genesis 1 through 11. Christian tradition uh, on the traditionalist side would say that this is the prescription. This is obviously how God intended it. And so they're unable, uh, or they exclude those who are unable to fill, fulfill that prescription of being in a straight heterosexual orientation. So what do we, what do, we do there? Because scholars, again, are all over the map on some of these things here. Remember, Paul wrote, writes most of the New Testament. He's the one that writes most of these things. Paul is well-versed in ancient Hebrew scripture. Paul was well-versed in the narrative, uh, creative nar creation narratives. Paul was well-versed in Leviticus. Paul had a firm grasp on all of these things. Paul lived in a society where pederasty and all these things were alive and well. Paul understood power over, and Paul was always against power over. And anyone exerting power over someone else in any form or fashion. So Paul would have come from this paradigm. Now, what do we do today? If we have the traditionalist on one side saying you read it at face value, you have the revisionist on the other side saying, no, nah, we don't know if you can read it at face value. You've got to kind of play with the words. You've got to figure out some things. One thing that Paul didn't have that we have, and I think this is a big deal, is science. Because science is kind of a big deal. In 2019, we know that based off of Genesis 1, God made them male and female. In 2019, we know that some people aren't necessarily born male and female. Some people just aren't. 
Some people today are born what we would call intersexual. Some people are born transgender. I mean, these terms, I know you've heard them. There, there's the, because we have the LGBTQ plus community that you might be familiar with. Mike, uh, Johnny, you have that graphic. It's not just, if you wondered what the plus is for, let me show you. LGBTQQIAAP, and there's more. I picked the shorter version. This is why people have shortened it to LGBTQ plus, because nobody can remember all of the letters. But, uh, and I can, I'll probably put this on, I don't know where I'll put this. Maybe I'll send it in our newsletter or something if you want to read it more. You can Google it. But basically, there are a couple of terms that we're very confused about, but science is showing us, like intersex, for instance. It's a variation of sex uh, characteristics involving chromosomes. There's science, genitals, things like this that don't allow a person to distinctly identify as male or female. Some people are born this way, not able to figure out how to identify whether as male or female. Transgender is someone who is born uh, with a gender identity or expression that doesn't match their assigned sex. So you can have certain organs, but you can have different chromosomes. You know, So you could have male organs, but female chromosomes. And so the, you're, you're, you're just... Now listen, the, pop, the percentage in our, in our world is small. And if this is not you, you can't wrap your brain around it. But if it's you, you spend your entire life trying to wrap your brain around it and being shunned and being dismissed and being discriminated against. You know, for anyone in the room, if you take your sexuality and, and because the majority, the, the larger percentage would be heterosexual. So if you consider yourself heterosexual, imagine yourself, you know, being like trying to make yourself be attracted to someone of the same sex. And you, in your brain, you're like, I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't do that. I could never imagine myself doing that. To the point that you might be like, I'm almost, I'm almost in some way repulsed by that because I can't do that. Well, of course. And if you are someone who's attracted to the same sex and you try to imagine yourself, if your orientation is same sex and you try to imagine yourself being with someone of the opposite sex, you're like, I just, I can't, I can't do that. Like, I can't wrap my head around that. Try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Between three and a half and five percent of the world's population is born with a same sex orientation. And science never allowed for, like science had not brought us to this place over centuries and centuries of time. And that's why people have been discriminated and dismissed and all these kinds of things. Because people are like, if, you're, if a person is heterosexual, they're like, oh, that's just, that's an abomination. That's this or that's that. And it's like, and so they've been dismissed and, they, and they've been forced into the closet and not accepted. And it's been a very painful, painful thing for so many people. And I would say, I would suggest that today science kind of makes room and says, hey, look, this, like, <laughs> some people are born this way and some people are born this way. Now, that's a scientifically proven fact. So now just take that and enter it into your processing with the Spirit of God about the traditionalist versus the revisionist. But I always encourage us not to argue science. I think science is one of God's greatest gifts to humanity. So we can actually figure out some life. So again, the arguments. The traditionalist view, God's design is male and female. Homosexual uh, activity in the ancient world meant the same thing that it means today. 
Homosexuality falls under the definition of the Greek word porneia, meaning sexual immorality. This is the traditionalist view. And scripture clearly shows us today that God's judgment is against homosexual practice. That's the traditionalist view. The revisionist view would say whether it was God's intent from the beginning was male or female or not. There was no grid for science at that time to understand that God's good creation, that some of God's good creation is born with same-sex orientation. The revisionist would say homosexuality in the ancient world in no way is meant to be the same thing that it means today, in today's world. And the revisionist would say that scripture seems less clear about God's judgment coming because of homosexual practice and God's uh, and scripture seems much more clear about God's judgment coming against anyone who would try to exert power over anyone else. That, that seems to be the, the, the main theme there. So how does one move forward? Okay. If you've checked out already, come back for just a minute. Because I'm going to wrap it up. I know this one was long, but I wanted to unpack it for you. I'm going to bring it back, and I'm going to give you a, a little bit of something, something here. There is a thing in Christian tradition called sexual ethics. If this is your first time with us, I usually try to teach about 25 minutes. So just uh, <laughs> thanks for hanging. But I thought this was important enough to do this. If I'm going to be fair to the, to the subject. There's a thing called sexual ethics in Christian tradition. And there's also a thing called sexual ethics in our society. Here they are. There's the idea of mutual consent ethic. Do what you want as long as you don't hurt anyone and don't involve kids. That would be the mutual consent ethic. There's the loving relationship ethic. Find a person that you love, restrict sex to only that person for the duration of the relationship. And then there would be what we call the covenantal marital ethic. And Christian history would lean towards, would say that God's plan for, this, for sexual ethics would be that two people would make a binding lifetime marriage covenant with one another and that they would remain faithful and exclusive to one another. I would argue that this is the place that Christians, whether you're man and woman or man and man or woman and woman, there is something deeply uh, um, um, embedded in the faith that says that relationship is the of the utmost importance to God. And that covenantal, committed relationship to one person is one of the most beautiful ways that God invites us to experience more connection to ourselves, to the other, to creation, and to God. So we're not taking things more lightly. We're actually taking things more seriously by offering ourselves to God and saying it is it is. It is me and it is this person. And we are, we are committed. And that way we're committed to working through the crap. <laughs> we're, we're committed to, to figuring things out along the way. We're committed to when we don't love each other, to, to pushing into it. Whether it's male, male, female, female, male, female, whatever it might be, that would be the thing. Now, here's the other thing. Because no one asked about divorce. But divorce also happens. And so I don't want, nobody needs to leave here feeling like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm, I missed the marital covenant Here's the thing. Twice? I don't know if you're winning. So, you know, it's like we got, that's the beauty of our community. We're all figuring it out along the way. But the idea is that we would move in the direction of committing ourselves to, to, to the kind of thing that we think God's inviting us into. 
probably in our room, more of us have been divorced than have stayed married. And I just want to say that there's, there's redemption and goodness and forgiveness. And some of you, your divorces is exactly, I don't know how this works, and I'm sure pastors probably don't say this very often, but for some of you, your divorce was exactly what had to happen because you were in a bad, bad situation. Okay, so there's, there's that. Um, but ultimately, as followers of Christ, what we're looking for, what we're moving towards, what we're hoping for, and what we're, we're lo- is how do we find that connection to ourselves, to others, to creation, and to God? And a part of that is when we find those relationships that we commit ourselves to. My journey, and this is how I'm going to finish, and we're going to share communion. So I think you need to know. My journey is one where I was brought up in a traditionalist view. I was taught to read the Bible. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. This is how it is. We read the Bible flat, and that's, that's the deal. My life experience, and I don't have time to go into it, but my life experience has led me um, through so many relationships with people of same-sex orientation. The first thing I ever did was to, to really move me on a journey was I actually read a book uh, based on science about same-sex orientation, and it began to unpack and unlock things that I had never thought of before because I had never allowed myself to think about those things because I was taught that I couldn't. And that's important. I believe I've come to a place and listen, I could be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong on it and see what God God does with us. I've come to a place where I I affirm same-sex relationships. I believe that if a woman has found a woman that she loves and they are committed to one another. I, I affirm that. Same with a man with a man and a man with a woman. I, that, is the, that is the road I go down. Now, you listen, you don't have to go down that road. The road you have to go down is the road of learning to continue to love people who aren't like you. That's, that's the road we all have to go down. You don't have to go down that road, and you don't have to believe the way I believe that in order to be a part of Mid-City Vineyard. But I do want you to know that that is the road that we're choosing to go down. This is the way we feel very led um, by the divine on. And, and so for me, welcome and affirming. But not just affirming, oh yeah, anybody sleep with anybody you want to at any time. No. Listen, there's, there's beauty in, in, the, in the sexual ethics that I believe that the Christian church has been teaching about being committed. But male, male, female, female, male, female. Commitment, love, I believe that God is breathing on and so that's where, that's where I land. That's where we as the Mid-City Vineyard uh, move in that direction. Uh, it's created lots of fun conversations along the way. It probably creates more questions for you. We have a thing tonight called Questions About Answers. We're going to talk about it some more. Listen, talk to me. You got more questions? Let's talk. I don't have answers. I have responses. I can give you more of my life journey which is and my walk with Christ, which is how I find myself where I do. I know I've gone long, but I still want us to share communion, and so uh, because that's the thing that binds us together more than anything. That's where the all the divisions, regardless of what we think and feel and believe, this is where we meet Christ and we meet one another. This is our space. This is our place. This is where Jesus is like, "Hey, I've broken down all the walls, and I want you to connect with one another and connect with me." Because my prayer is that we even find Christ in this.